Hey, it's Alicia Sani. And I'm Aldonado. From HuffPost Canada, you're listening to Born and Raised, a podcast about children of immigrants living in Canada. This season, we're talking all about love. And this week, we're heading to a very special seaport, Pier 21. So if you were immigrating to Canada in the early part of the 20th century, there was a good chance you passed through Pier 21. Starting in the 1920s and all the way to the early 70s, one in five newcomers to Canada passed through it. Okay, so you're saying it's like how Ellis Island is in the States. Yeah, exactly. For some of these newcomers, it wasn't just a new start for themselves. For many couples, it marked the start of their new lives together. So today, we're taking a trip to Halifax to hear love stories from Pier 21 as told by kids of these couples. Okay, Al, so what was Pier 21 like? I'm picturing like a seaport with boats and seagulls squawking. What else was there? All right, so try to picture a sort of one-stop shop for essentials. First, immigration officers would examine you, and if everything was in order, you'd get stamped in. Then you could grab some bread and cheese at the canteen, exchange currency, nurse your kids, even stay for a night if you needed to. But you wouldn't stay long, because Pier 21 was a place of transition. Everyone there was in a hurry to be somewhere else. If you think about it, it's kind of like Canada's front door. Yeah, you knock and you get let in, and then you're on your way. That's right. Your time there was short but necessary. Every trip needs pit stops, and this just so happens to be a nationally beloved one. Our first love story comes from Augusto and Ophelia, as told by their son, Don Pizzuto. Alla più sincera signorina, San Andrea Barbarana Treviso, Italia. What you are hearing are the first three lines of a letter written by Augusto Pizzuto. Augusto was born in Canada, but spent his childhood and teen years in Italy. As a young man, Augusto went back to his hometown of Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, to work in the steel mill like his brothers and father before him. After a few years of living in the Sioux, Augusto figured it was time he settled down. So he wrote a letter. Alla più sincera signorina di San Andrea Barbarana. Which roughly translates to... To the most honest uh, young woman of this particular village, San Andrea Barbarana. Okay, honest. That's an interesting word choice. Why honest? Well, according to Don... I suppose that's who you would want to get married to, would be someone who is sincere, honest, um, unencumbered, straightforward, perhaps. So Gusto sends the letter, along with all of his hopes for a bride, to this small northern village in Italy. Oh, he was from the village? Nope. Did he know anyone from it? <laughs> nope. So why that place? This particular village had attractive young ladies. As you can guess, this letter gets to the village and goes nowhere. Like, where do you send a letter addressed to no one? Mm-hmm. The village post office, they don't know what to make of it. So that letter sits in the office for a while. The woman who works there would talk about this strange Canadian letter to anyone who'd listen, and eventually she ended up chatting to a woman who had a single niece called Ophelia. Oh, I think I know where this is going. At first, Ophelia was like, no, auntie, that's not happening. Didn't want anything to do with it. But eventually, Ophelia got curious and opened the letter. 
And after reading Augusto's words, she writes back. And then Augusto responds. And then Ophelia writes again. So they had, uh, they wrote back and forth, uh, courted by mail, basically. They may have written letters two, two times a day at some point. Okay, so this whole story reminds me of my own parents. Really? How? So 30-odd years ago, my dad put an ad in a classified section of a South Asian newspaper with a few bullet points, something about, I guess, man-seeking wife. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom replied to it. And he was in New York, and my mom was in Ottawa. And then they must have kept up a correspondence, right? Yeah, so they phone dated and did long distance for a little over a year. But when they weren't hanging out in real life or talking on the phone and spending zillions of dollars, I would imagine, on a phone bill, they were writing these beautiful letters to each other. And I found this old box in my basement, and it had all their letters and all their correspondence. And it's these thoughtfully written, beautifully handwritten with pen on, you know, lined paper with nice envelopes. It's so pretty, the stationery and the the prose was so pretty. Like, it's so poetic to think that that's how they, you know, kept kept their dating life going. I, I romanticize the idea of how they dated because it's so different from how dating is today, which is obviously a little bit crass mm-hmm. to say the least you're lucky if you get an emoji yeah exactly so it's just funny to think that that small little photo in the newspaper led to this whole story and like my existence <laughs> <laughs> now speaking of photos don didn't have access to the letters they sent each other but he did have a picture augusto sent of himself to ophelia my father was a pretty fit young man and uh was working as a laborer uh, and he went to a photo studio to get some um, pictures done at the time, which is what you do. And he claims that the it was a photographer's idea to have him take off his shirt. Alicia, are you ready for a ticket to the gun show? <laughs> well, Al, I have no choice, do I? <laughs> no, you don't. Whoa. Look at these arms. Biceps for days. He looks very strong. So... This photo, for our listeners, it's a black and white photo of a very shirtless man. You can't really see his face, but you can definitely see those guns. Is it hot boy summer? Can I say that? That's not a thing. Ah, Back then, probably not. (laughs) No, but this is a man of confidence. Like those arms, he's flexing like, girl, I can provide for you. On the back of the photo, Augusto wrote a very charming note about his body. Alto il petto, dritto lo sguardo. Fiero l'orgoglio di essere sano e forte. Anche ciò è un grande e un bel dono del creatore. Attendo i tuoi commenti, Augusto. What he's saying there is essentially he's got a rocking bod. Like, it's literally a gift from God and he's waiting for her comments. So I'm guessing the shirtless pic really did the trick. Who's to say? Whatever the reason, after two years of letter writing, Augusto asked a very important question. Ophelia, ti amo. Vuoi sposarmi? He proposed, and she accepted. So he traveled from Canada to Italy, where they got married. And in 1958, after a week-long voyage across the Atlantic, the three of them reached Canada and passed through Pier 21. Wait, three of them? Ophelia was pregnant with Don. (gasps) I know! The couple went on to raise four children in Sault Ste. Marie. They had a wonderful life together. And this unlikely courtship is Don's favorite story about his parents. 
My parents' story taught me that love is very powerful. You know, it's kind of old-fashioned, but if you think about it, it's uh, it's what some people do nowadays, but on online, before they actually see each other. Um, so they were kind of ahead of their time, in a, in a sense, even though it does sound rather old-fashioned. Okay, maybe love is real. Maybe it is. And I'm totally going to copy that love letter move. I'm going to put in my dating profile. It's just looking for an honest girl, and I'm going to see what happens. Well, it worked for Augusto. Yeah, you never know, so fingers crossed. Now, Pier 21 is filled with stories just like Augusto's and Ophelia's. Countless new lives started at the seaport. Pier 21 is still around today, but not as a reception facility. It lives on as Canada's Museum of Immigration. In fact, we found Augusto and Ophelia's story with the help of someone who has been working at the museum since it opened up. My name is Carrie Ann Smith. I'm from Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Carrie started with the museum when it was just a grassroots project in 1998 and is now vice president of audience engagement. Carrie's dedicated to honoring the stories of Pier 21 by sharing them with visitors. People have come to the museum and recognized themselves in photographs in the exhibit, and people come in and they tell you what you got right, and they tell you what you got wrong, and then you fix it because they have that lived experience. They're the authentic voice. Living history is just really special in that way. The stories mean so much to Carrie that she's actually arranged to be the first one to read them when they're sent to the museum, as well as the one who writes the thank you notes to those who share. She actually had a very personal reaction to Dawn's story. When she first read it, she just fell in love. Dawn's story is written with such love and, and respect and admiration for his parents. I think it was a wonderful, wonderful family life. It's so good on its own, but my head really exploded because his family lived not just in Sault Ste. Marie, where I'm from, but on the exact same street that my great-grandfather immigrated to from Italy in 1907. And Don's dad was a steelworker at Algoma Steel. And in 1907, that's what my grandfather's immigration record says. Like, he is going to his employer, Algoma Steel. What? I mean, I guess it just goes to show. You never know who you're a couple of degrees separated from. What's even wilder, Alicia, is that Don and Carrie also worked at the same steel mill too. Like, their families probably grew up together in Sault Ste. Marie's Little Italy neighborhood. Carrie says she doesn't think she knows Don's family personally, but chances are they ran in the same circles. I've got some fun facts for you, Alicia. Did you know you could tell what was happening in the world based on what was happening in Pier 21? No, I had no idea. Now you know. <laughs> After World War II, a lot of women started immigrating to Canada. Over 40,000 arrived, and with their arrival was the sound of wedding bells. So it sounds like a lot of Canadian soldiers found love abroad and then asked their fiancés to come over once peacetime started. That's absolutely right. And these were Canada's war brides. Jean Keegan of Surrey, England, was one of them. But unlike her peers, Jean's story isn't one that involves settling in a farming village or in a small town. Jean was headed to a reserve down by the Tobik River. You see, Jean fell in love with Charlie, an indigenous soldier who was serving overseas. So Jean's life in Canada was different from the other war brides. So much so that when English writer Maggie Butt read about Jean, she was inspired to write a poem about her that we'd like to share. 
So here is Jean's story and Maggie's poem, as told by Jean's daughter. Um, my name is Cynthia, Cindy Paul Gaffney, from, and I'm from, uh, originally I was born in Tobik Reserve. Dad was born on that reserve in 1924. Dad was probably 18 when he uh, joined the Carlton York Regiment in um, Fredericton. He came to Fredericton to join um, World War II. He was shipped to uh, um, a base near where my mother lived in England. After being there for several months, uh, he and a friend decided to go to a dance um, near the base where they were stationed. And uh, they were told that there'd be lots of girls there. Cindy's father, Charlie, set eyes on Jean. And well, the rest is history. All is left behind forever. How a moment rocks the future, fingers touching in the darkness, of a smoky crowded dance hall, swept me from home county's life to a world of smooth back rivers. He had asked her to dance. And, you know, it wasn't long after that that they were seeing each other quite often. And everybody liked him, and they all called him Buck, which was his nickname from uh, Tobik. And the next thing you know, um, Mom was pregnant. They decided that they better get married. Mom ended up having to go and live with a relative in Liverpool and wait to have her baby there. And Dad was shipped off to Italy. Two years since our war poor wedding. Seven teams seemed old enough if he was old enough to fight. Now the terror of my father. After the war, Charlie went back to Canada. Jean gave birth to Chris, Cindy's oldest sister. Jean wanted to reunite with her husband in Canada, but there were naysayers. First the priest who married them, then the Red Cross, which helped her war brides on their way to Canada. Are you sure you want to, you know, stay with an Indian? You don't know what it's like up there. But mom insisted she wanted to go. So off she went with her baby and Jean boarded the Aquitania. She crossed the Atlantic with hundreds of other war brides to start their lives in Canada. Lives that started at Pier 21. 40,000 brides on cruise ships, 20,000 cooped up kids, waved off on a great adventure. High heels and our homemade trousseaus, secret stash of favorite lipstick, snapshots of our mums and dads. Canada is blue horizons, distances which swallow England. Now stand alone they got to Halifax and they were all so excited. Mum uh, was just happy, I think, just to get on, on land or, for a while. And... Many brides met their husbands at Pier 21. Jean didn't. She took a train to a New Brunswick village. From there, Jean, her daughter, and a priest traveled by canoe. They paddled down the river to Tobik Reserve. Who could guess a blind date dare would lift me like a wave in Surrey? Wash me to the Woolastook, where the woods dip to the river. Old canoe now rocks beneath me. Unreal is a waking dream. All because I kissed a soldier, wore his nylons, 
ate his chocolate, staunched the wound of loneliness. And on the shore was Dad waiting for her. And that's the story of Jean and Charlie. Of course, it doesn't end there. Jean came from a middle-class upbringing, so her new life took some adjusting to. It was difficult for Mom. I can remember there was a story where uh, she had looked out the window and she said to Dad, Charlie, there's a bloody big horse outside, and it was a moose. <laughs> she wanted Dad to get her gun to kill it. It was a, it was a horse. Cindy recalls growing up in a small shack and attending the Indian day school system, where speaking Willistic was forbidden by the nuns. That wasn't the case at home, where her mom took great pains to learn and speak her husband's language. She didn't seem too lonely, really, for England, I don't think. This was her home, and, you know, these were her people, and that's what she really wanted. This is where she wanted to be, you know, was with Dad. Her father faced his own battles, even after the war. Soldiers who came back received benefits like money to buy land. Indigenous soldiers were shut out of these opportunities. Charlie was well known for sticking up for his fellow Indigenous veterans, writing letters to the government, and working with the Royal Canadian Legion. Whatever veterans got, the Native veterans didn't get. So Dad fought for them to get what they, you know, to get what they deserved. Through thick and thin, the couple stayed together until the end. They had six children, and after a while, Charlie was elected chief. Before Jean's passing, they took their kids to England to see all the spots that meant a lot to them, like where they had their first kiss. I started realizing how much, you know, Mom had given up and how deep their love was for each other, so that, that really stays with me. I think when you love somebody that you can be anywhere, you can live anywhere. You know, as long as you have a partner that you love so much that, you know, love's possible. Just two completely different lives, you know, coming together and living in a community you've never been and thought you'd never be and, and raising children that uh, become good citizens. I think that's important to have. Pure 21 meant so many things to so many people. I bet no one thought it was going to be so special at the time. Even the people passing through it didn't know. A lot of first-generation immigrants from that time, they were busy just trying to survive. I can't help but think of my own grandma when I hear these stories. She tells me so many stories of how, how it was back then living in Canada in the mid-60s when she came. I mean, nobody looked like her. Nobody spoke like her. And she had to carve this whole life for herself. She tells me all kinds of stories about the racial slurs she heard and, you know, people egging her house and the car. And I just can't even imagine what kind of thick skin she must have had to develop yeah. just to get through those days. Yeah. Not to mention the minus 50 degrees of, of oh, cold. On top of that, yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think it means for her to be able to share those stories with you? I think she feels a sense of pride that we've come such a long way since then. I think she feels really happy that, you know, Canada doesn't look like that anymore. I have such a diverse group of friends, and I think it makes her feel really warm and happy to see that I have have this diversity in my life and all these kinds of experiences that, like, help me see the world differently. Reflecting on these stories made me realize I don't know a lot about my own family. Like, my grandma died when I was a teenager, 
and I'm not super close to my grandpa. He's in the Philippines. It made me realize that unless I go talk to him, a lot of what I know about my family, it's going to get lost because my mom only knows so much. I really want to hear from the source. Like all my friends have grandparents who live in other countries and they just wish they could just hear from the source. Exactly. Like you see pictures, you hear stories. But it's not the same. It's not the same. You got a book of flight to the Philippines. <laughs> BRB. <laughs> <laughs> this feeling we have about immigrant stories, it's exactly why a museum like Pier 21 exists. And it's why Carrie does what she does. And I start, you know, I'm telling the stories and doing the interpretation. And I can just see this kind of sadness come over them. And what they'll usually say is, I, you know, I've lost my mother and my father. Why didn't I ask more questions? Why didn't I make them write it down? So the story collection is really important. And what I always tell people is don't write, don't write the story for us. Write it for, the, write it for your family and your friends and just give us a copy because then the story will be preserved forever. Said go, let it go. Go let it go, find your dreams over on Pier 21. Go let it go, go let it go, but don't you ever forget where you're from. Well, that's it from us. Born and Raised is hosted by me, Aldonado. And me, Alicia Sani. Our producers are TK Matunda, Stephanie Werner, and Aldonado. Our executive producers are Lisa Young and Andre Lau. Additional production work courtesy of Maya Kapler, Katie Jensen, and Vocal Fry Studios. A special thanks to all our guests, Donato Pizzuto, Cindy Gaffney, Carrie Ann Smith, as well as voice actors Franco Berti and Sophie Gallagher. Major gratitude to Pier 21's Beatrice Houston Gilfoy for all her help coordinating with the museum. And a thank you to John Wart Hannum for letting us use his song, Pier 21. It's from his album, Pocket Full of Holes. For more by John, head to johnwarthannum.com. And if you'd like to share you or your family's immigration story with Pier 21, you can visit pier21.ca slash share. Thanks for listening. Tune into our next episode. It sounds a little bit like this. I was very consistent where I would have six to 12 drinks a night, every night, seven days a week. And I would wake up delirious in the morning, manage to get myself to work, maybe eat lunch and be back and drinking in the evening to chase away the hangover and then pass out and do it again.